0: No war, won or lost, is ever waged without sacrifice. Those sacrifices can be material in the loss of equipment or infrastructure, monetary in the cost to a nation's economy of waging a war, but it is always in blood. Death is at the very nature of war. And while armies going back to antiquity may have sought to limit their own casualties whenever they could, the threat of death is forever present. However, death is not always a matter of the unfortunate circumstance a combatant might find themselves in during their final moments. Throughout history, there are those who have engaged the enemy knowing that while they will certainly die, their sacrifice may have meaning for their comrades. One oft quoted passage from the Bible reads thus, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. Often the decision to make such a sacrifice is made in the heat of battle. However, as the Second World War entered its final phase, the demand for sacrifice in order to help turn the tide against an increasingly hopeless situation led to an almost industrial scale undertaking to throw human lives at the enemy in the hope of deflecting the inevitable. This is the story of The Divine Wind, Japan's Kamikazes. Welcome to wars of the world. The story of the Kamikazes begins not in World War II, but over 700 years before, at the time of the Mongol Empire. In 1260 AD, Kublai Khan assumed the throne as Emperor of the Mongol Empire, initiating the Yuan Dynasty in 1271, during which time he followed in that tradition of emperors the world over, the expansion of his domain. Under his rule, the empire came to reach from the Black Sea to Siberia, to what is now known as Afghanistan, and as far east as the Pacific Ocean, from where he eyed the islands of modern-day Japan as ripe for the taking. Japan was at this time in the Kamkura period of its history, founded over a century before, and it was in the grips of religious change as Zen Buddhism grew in popularity amongst the samurai, the Japanese warrior nobility. While events in China were a cause for concern for the samurai, there was some reassurance to be had in that in order to reach Japan, the Mongols would require a vast fleet to carry an invasion force if they were to have any chance of launching a successful attack. To move such a force by sea at that time was extremely risky, and so exactly why Kublai Khan decided to undertake a military adventure of that nature is still debated amongst historians. Some believe it was part of a larger strategy aimed at defeating his great enemy in Southern China, the Song Dynasty, by denying them the Japanese islands for trade and fishing grounds, while others have suggested that he was led to believe that Japan had vast gold reserves. Regardless, Kublai Khan tried diplomacy first by sending envoys to Japan, offering friendly relations as long as Japan agreed to side with him, that Japan stop its groups of pirates, known as the Wako, from plundering Mongol ships, and that Japan pay tribute to the Mongol court. Ruling Japan at that time was the regent shogun, Hojo Tokimune, who viewed these demands as surrendering control of his own nation and so dismissed them. When Kublai Khan responded with threats of military action, Tokamune rebuffed them, claiming his warriors could deal with the Khan's men. Thus, the stage was set for a maritime invasion the likes of which the world had never seen. In November of 1274, Kublai Khan called upon his considerable strength in men and ships and amassed an invasion force estimated to be in the region of 40,000 troops who would be carried to Japan aboard over 800 ships. Landing on Shushima and Iki Islands, the invaders met stiff resistance, but were able to establish a foothold and begin moving out to capture further territory. On November 20th, 1274, The invaders secured Hakata Bay, but at the cost of their general, Lu Fuxiang, who was killed by an arrow. That night, a powerful storm, now generally believed to be a typhoon, struck the bay. Almost a third of the force were wiped out, many of whom were aboard their ships at the time. With the general dead and their force savaged, the invaders returned to China, while the samurai in Japan viewed the event as divine intervention. The Mongols then attempted diplomacy again, but their emissaries were beheaded by the Japanese, and so another invasion force, this time numbering 100,000 men aboard a staggering 4,400 ships was dispatched in 1281. This time, the Japanese were much better prepared for the invasion, and the Mongol forces found themselves facing an entrenched and organized enemy. Despite the size of his army, Kublai Khan was forced to throw even more men into the invasion, but on August 14th, his invasion fleet was again savaged by a typhoon. Thousands of men perished or were left stranded on Japanese beaches where they were hunted down and executed by the samurai. This invasion too was a failure. And again, the samurai saw the storm as divine intervention, thus leading to the term kamikaze, meaning divine wind. The story of the divine winds saving Japan from a fleet of foreign invaders became legend to generations of Japanese men and women who grew to believe that when their home was threatened, the kamikaze would come to spare it from destruction. Thus, as Imperial Japan found itself being bled to death by the Allies in 1944, after its war of aggression had turned into a battle for its very survival, the Japanese leadership saw the legend as the ideal recruitment tool for a terrifying new and final phase of the war. While discipline and motivation are essential for any army, the Japanese took them to the extreme. Individualism within the ranks of Japanese forces was often eradicated wherever possible, as each soldier served the wishes of the emperor, Hirohito, whom they viewed as a living god. Therefore, one's own life mattered very little when compared to the glory of the emperor, and to die for him and his empire was considered extremely honorable. As such, the Japanese fought with incredible tenacity, with any notion of surrender simply unthinkable. Thus, Japanese troops were far more willing to sacrifice themselves in combat if necessary than their allied counterparts. And the United States learned this on day one of the Pacific War. During the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the very incident that instigated the Pacific War, First Lieutenant Fusata Aida found his aircraft hit by machine gun fire whilst attacking the nearby airfields at Kaneohe Bay. Losing fuel, he signaled to his wingman that he was unable to return to the carrier and that instead he was going to deliberately crash his plane into the airfield's largest hangar. He was ultimately unsuccessful in this attempt, ground fire tearing his aircraft to shreds, causing him to overshoot his targets before hitting the ground. However, in the months that followed, such desperate acts were the exception The start of Japan's war against the United States, Britain, China, and Holland was extraordinarily successful. Japan rose to the heights it once only dreamed of, storming across Southern Asia and the Pacific, threatening Australia and pursuing the bloodiest US Navy ever further back to the US West Coast. All that changed following the Battle of Midway on June 4, 1942, in the pivotal battle Japan's carrier force was decimated and a great number of its experienced Naval pilot corps were killed. The victory afforded the United States the one thing it needed above all else at that point in the war, time, time to fully gear up for the task of grinding down the Japanese war machine in a bloody war of attrition that Japan could not handle. Within a year after Midway, the long retreat to the home islands was underway And as Japan itself became increasingly threatened, many Japanese soldiers took it upon themselves to launch suicide attacks in the belief that this would strike a powerful blow against their enemy for their country and emperor. As a result of this, the exact point in which the time of the Kamikazes began is debated amongst historians, but is generally agreed to be in early 1944. By that time, Japan had, in the air, lost its edge against the Allies, both in quantity and quality, now having to face an enemy with superior numbers of better aircraft and perhaps more crucially, better-trained pilots. On a traditional military level, Japan could no longer compete, and so many Japanese officers began to contemplate whether deliberately ramming targets might prove a more effective tactic, despite the loss of a desperately needed pilot. One man who believed in the necessity and effectiveness of such suicide attacks was Captain Okamura, who commanded the Tatayama Air Base near Tokyo. During a secret meeting with Vice Admiral Onishi, he outlined his plan to arm up a number of aircraft that were no longer able to hold their own against the Americans and use them to slam into enemy ships. He argued that a committed Japanese pilots with orders to dash through the American defenses to their targets and die for the emperor would be unstoppable. They would be effective and strike terror into the hearts of the Americans who he knew valued the life of the individual much more than the loyal soldiers of the Japanese empire did. Such attacks would thus send a message that Japan would stop at nothing to ensure its survival. When asked about getting volunteers for such one-way missions, Okamura replied, quote, "'I have personally talked to the men under my command, "'and I am convinced that there will be "'as many volunteers as are necessary.'" Following this meeting, Okamura began his investigations into establishing a dedicated suicide squadron beginning on June 15th, 1944. Meanwhile, Japanese pilots in the heat of battle continued to act on their own initiative and make suicide attacks on Allied ships. On September 12th, 1944, Two Japanese Army pilots stationed on the Negros Islands volunteered to launch a suicide attack against a nearby US carrier battle group. First Lieutenant Kosai and a Sergeant, whose name appears lost to history, took off in their aircraft, each fitted with 100 kilogram bombs, just before dawn in search of an American carrier, However, it appears that both were intercepted and destroyed before they could reach their objectives. The American defenders unaware of the true intentions of their victims. Another famous suicide attack came in the form of that undertaken by Rear Admiral Arima. Commanding the 1st Air Fleet's 26th Air Flotilla on October 15, 1944, he ordered two waves of Yokosuka D-4Y Judy bombers to attack the USS Franklin. To the surprise of many of his men, he elected to join them in the attack despite being comparatively soft-spoken and tactful when compared to other japanese commanders it was known that he favored suicide attacks when the chips were down and so seeing him on the flight line made them believe he had no intention of coming back the two waves of aircraft made their attacks against the franklin but were set upon by waves of american fighters before most could even get near their targets A single bomb struck the Franklin's aft deck, killing three sailors, but causing relatively minor damage to the ship while Arima himself was intercepted and shot down. However, Japanese authorities had already become convinced that the damage was caused by Arima's suicide dive into the ship, and he was immediately elevated to the status of a national hero, while the exaggeration of the damage he had caused was enough to encourage volunteers for the new special units, which would be conducting suicide attacks in the coming months. Less than a week later, on October 21st, whilst supporting American forces during the crucial battle to retake the Philippines, the Royal Australian Navy cruiser, HMAS Australia, was deliberately rammed by a suicide aircraft, killing 30 on board, including the ship's captain, while wounding 60 others. In Australia itself, this attack is generally considered the start of the kamikaze period. However, most agree that the attack was again done on the pilot's own initiative, rather than as a part of a planned suicide attack. The attack on HMAS Australia took place just three days after Vice Admiral Onishi had come to the conclusion that suicide attacks were now the only way to turn the tide of the war in the Pacific back in their favor or to at least delay the Allies' advance. Having listened to Okamura's suggestions and knowing firsthand Japan's dire situation in terms of aircraft production, when he arrived in the Philippines to assume command of the First Air Fleet, he called a meeting on October 19th in which he expressed his belief that his new force's depleted strength was woefully insufficient in the face of the Allied forces pitted against them. During the meeting, a grim-faced, tired-looking Onishi told his subordinates, In my opinion, there is only one way of assuring that our meagre strength will be effective to a maximum degree. That is to organize suicide attack runs. Onishi called for volunteers from amongst his men. The thought of ordering them to go being too much for even him to bear at that time. It did not take long for 25 young men to volunteer for the special units, which would fall under the command of Lieutenant Yukio Seki, There was little doubt concerning Seki's courage, leadership skills, and flying abilities, with him being one of the more experienced men available to Onishi, but he was initially hesitant, not so much for his own safety, but rather concerning his young wife and his recently widowed mother, who were both his dependents. In the end, duty prevailed, and he agreed to command the new unit. Looking for an identity, it was Onishi's staff officer, Captain Inoguchi, who suggested that it be known as the Kamikaze Corps. The intention being that like that divine wind from centuries ago, these brave men would arrive when Japan needed them most and destroy the enemy's ships. Other suicide units would adopt different names, but the term Kamikaze stuck in the minds of both the Japanese and the allies, and the name would forever be associated more with the desperate act of committing suicide in combat against one's enemy than of the divine wind that sunk the Mongol fleet. Onishi and his staff were taken by surprise at not only how willing their men were to participate in such operations, but also how eager many of them were. Despite knowing that they would die, the creation of the suicide force actually rejuvenated the Japanese in the Philippines somewhat, with many ground crews expressing their envy that these men were giving their lives in such an honorable endeavor. It encouraged Onishi to look for more volunteers elsewhere. And on October 20th, he dispatched Commander Nakajima to another naval air base to form another group. Nakajima was insistent that he would only take volunteers, and as well as listing reasons why many of them shouldn't volunteer, such as being married or having dependents, he also made the volunteering process anonymous so that no one would feel shamed into volunteering for death. To his amazement, the only ones who didn't volunteer were two pilots who were in the nearby hospital, recovering from injuries they had sustained in combat. With a core of ready volunteers eager to do their part, Onishi now had to decide where best to deploy them in order for their sacrifice not to be wasted and their deaths to bring about the maximum damage on the allies. He selected the carriers of the US 3rd Fleet, and on the morning of October 21st, a force of kamikazes was dispatched to hunt them down. However, poor visibility meant that they were unable to locate the fleet, and so their pilots would live just a little longer as they were forced to return to their base as they ran low on fuel. Later in the afternoon, Commander Nakajima's men prepared to launch five, zero fighters, each fitted with a 250 kilogram bomb, to begin their hunt for the carriers, but they instead found themselves under attack by American aircraft. The zeros were each destroyed on the ground, so another three were prepared, and their pilots took off in the direction from which the attackers came, hoping to locate their carriers. Again, the Kamikazes had no luck, but while two of them returned to base, a third flown by Lieutenant Kuno continued on using the last of his fuel in an effort to find a target. He was never seen again, Presumably shot down en route. Over the coming days, the US and Allied forces engaged in a bloody and brutal battle, in which the Japanese forces were increasingly being mauled by superior Allied air power. The battle even cost the Japanese one of their super battleships, the Musashi, sister to the famous Yamato. These losses only further convinced Japanese leaders that conventional warfare was no longer an option and that the Kamikaze was the only choice left open. On the morning of October 25th, four Zeros managed to slip by the American fighter patrols using heavy clouds for cover and spotted the US escort carrier, USS Santee. Achieving total surprise, the carrier's anti-aircraft gunners were still trying to bring their weapons to bear when the first Zero smashed into the ship, blowing a hole 30 feet long and 15 feet wide in the flight deck, starting fires in the hangar below. Were it not for a Herculean damage control effort by the ship's company, the fire threatened to ignite numerous bombs that were being armed onto the aircraft ready for a mission. Had they detonated, the ship would have been a total loss. 16 men were killed and 27 wounded, alerted to the danger they were in. The carrier and its escorts began firing desperately at the remaining aircraft. Another zero made for the carrier USS Suwani, but at the last minute was hit by American fire and sent spiraling into the sea where its bomb detonated, sending out shrapnel that killed one desperately unlucky sailor aboard the USS Sangamon. A third Zero was destroyed attempting to strike the USS Petroff Bay, while the fourth Kamikaze pilot now found himself the subject of an attack by US Grumman F6F Hellcats. The Americans were so preoccupied with the suicidal pilots above them that they failed to notice a Japanese submarine had appeared off the starboard of the USS Santee. The submarine launched an ineffective attack, but this succeeded in briefly turning American attention away from the skies. The remaining kamikaze decided now was his opportunity and with the hellcats in pursuit made a hell-bent charge for the uss Sawani. hit by defensive fire and trailing smoke the kamikaze struck the ship its bomb detonating between the flight deck and the hangar starting numerous fires and disabling the ship's steering mechanism again A remarkable damage control effort saved the ship from more serious damage, but for the cost of just four Zeros and their pilots, the Japanese had effectively taken two American carriers out of the fight for a better part of a day and limited their overall effectiveness until they could be fully repaired in port. The next day, more of the Kamikazes went into action. Five Zeros, led by Lieutenant Seki, set off from the Malakat airfield on Luzon to attack the US fleet off Samar. The aircraft were provided with escort fighters, one of which was flown by Japan's highest scoring ace, Hiroyoshi Nishizawa, who would have 87 victories to his credits, coming in low to avoid detection until the very last moment, two kamikazes were shot down, attempting to hit the USS Fanshawe Bay, while a third managed to hit the flight deck of the USS Kitkun Bay, its bomb exploding as it made contact and sending the plane's wreckage over the side into the water, leaving behind numerous fires on board. Seki and another Zero made for the USS White Plains, but faced very heavy anti-aircraft fire. With both aircraft hit by 40 mm AA shells, Seki broke off his attack, and instead targeted the USS St. Lowe while his comrade pressed on before his aircraft was knocked onto its side and it crashed astern of his target. Seki smashed his plane through the flight deck of the St. Lowe at tremendous speed, blowing a hole into the hangar, his fuel and bomb igniting fires which in turn triggered a devastating chain of events that saw fuel and weapons stored on board ignited. By 1100 hours, it was clear that the sent low was lost and the crew began abandoning ship. From their lifeboats, they watched as 25 minutes later, their carrier slipped beneath the waves. The first, but by no means the last ship to be lost to the kamikazes. This and the damage done to the other carriers were a remarkable victory that seemed to vindicate the belief that such tactics were the only way to save Japan. The Battle of the Late Gulf, in which organized suicide missions by pilots against the Allies began, is credited as being the largest naval battle in history, with over 200,000 men involved. It also proved the growing importance of Japanese conventional air and naval power, while simultaneously demonstrating what one truly committed soldier of the Empire could achieve. The genie was out of the bottle for the kamikazes, and more suicide units were quickly formed and thrown into the fray, while at the same time, Japanese engineers began looking at ways of improving their effectiveness, including developing dedicated kamikaze aircraft. Between mid-October 1944 and January 1945, over 500 aircraft had undertaken kamikaze sorties, inflicting great damage on Allied ships, as well as striking fear amongst their crews. To modern, particularly Western minds, it is difficult to fathom how someone could so willingly plan and train to throw their lives away. Conventional thinking would argue that it is better to live for one's country and fight for as long as possible to achieve victory, rather than just serve one day in combat, despite the gains that could be made by that one sacrifice. A fascinating insight into the mind of a kamikaze volunteer can be found in the words of one of those who survived the Kamikaze Corps, Hiseo Horiyama, who was 21 years old when he was asked to become a Kamikaze in late 1944. Speaking to the UK's Guardian newspaper in 2015, he explained, "'When we graduated from army training school, "'the Showa Emperor visited our unit on a white horse. "'I thought then that this was a sign "'that he was personally requesting our services. I knew that I had no choice but to die for him. At that time, we believed that the emperor and nation of Japan were one and the same. We finished our training and were given a slip of white paper, giving us three options, to volunteer out of a strong desire to simply volunteer or to decline. We didn't think too much. We were trained to suppress our emotions. Even if we were to die, we knew it was for a worthy cause. Dying was the ultimate fulfillment of our duty and we were commanded not to return. Despite the common narrative that every Japanese soldier went willingly, embracing their destiny, post-war research seems to contradict this. While the initial cadre of pilots were indeed enthusiastic, the numbers of volunteers to replace these men in the suicide units very quickly began to dry up. Many of those approached to join were barely out of school and beginning or just completing their pilot training when they were asked to die for Japan. Having barely experienced life, they were not so eager to throw it away. Japanese commanders lauded the men who volunteered willingly, making sure their last few hours were spent as heroes before their sacrifice. But those who elected not to volunteer had a very different experience. These men were often questioned as to why they would not wish to die for the emperor in the hope this would force them to reconsider, often being told that they were going to die at the hands of the allies anyway, and that their death might as well mean something. Others were shamed into volunteering, either by the other members of their units who did volunteer, or by being told that their families would disown them if they did not go, family honor being a cherished notion in Japanese culture. Regardless, in their quest for volunteers, willing or otherwise, Japanese commanders also seemed to care little for age. On May 27th, 1945, two obsolete Sonya light bombers were flown into the US destroyer USS Brain while it was providing radar picket duties for the invasion of Okinawa. One aircraft struck the bridge while the other crashed amidships, killing 66 sailors. Flying one of these Kamikaze aircraft was Yukio Araki, aged just 17 years old. Given the threat from the Kamikazes, the Allied navies began dramatically increasing the number of fighters on board their carriers with the intention of destroying as many of them as possible and as far away from the ships as possible since when a kamikaze was in its death dive, hitting it with defensive guns often did very little, and more than once, they still struck their targets, despite having been reduced to a burning wreck beforehand. Just a small fire started by the wreckage from a destroyed kamikaze had the potential for disaster on board a fueled and armed warship. The kamikaze threats would thus see the introduction of large numbers of one of history's great aircraft on carrier decks near the end of the war, namely the Vought F4U Corsair. While the Corsair had been in service since December 1942, it had primarily been operated from land bases and it wasn't considered as suitable for carrier operations as the F6F. Now, the Corsair was being thrust into the fray against the Kamikazes. Brutish, powerful, as tough as old boots and blisteringly fast for its day, the Corsair proved its worth against the Kamikazes and became known as the Angel of Okinawa, for its success rate against them during the battle. The trouble for the Kamikazes was that given the damage Allied bombing was doing to Japan's industry, the aircraft available for the one-way mission were often obsolete types that had survived the war thus far. Often they were barely serviceable, having suffered the punishment of combat already or a lack of replacement parts coming out of a burning Japan. This fact led to the remarkable tale of one Takahiko Ina, who at 20 years old was studying economics in Tokyo when he was asked to become a kamikaze. Between April and May, 1945, he made three separate attempts to carry out his final duty for the empire. But each time, mechanical troubles prevented him from completing his mission. And on his last attempt, his aircraft's engine cut out, causing him and his two crew members to crash into the sea. Washing up on a nearby island, they had to wait two and a half months to be rescued he would survive the war and live to his 90s. However, as the battle for Okinawa raged, the Japanese were still able to introduce a new, more powerful kamikaze, one that appeared almost unstoppable. The Yokosuka MXY-7, more commonly known as the Oka, was never meant to be an aeroplane of any type. This was a guided anti-ship missile, and the guidance system was, of course, a single pilot on a suicide mission. Powered by three Type 4 Mark 1 Model 20 solid propellant rocket motors, the 2,140 kilogram missile was capable of reaching speeds of up to 403 miles per hour in level flight. But when it entered its dive onto the targets with all its rockets burning the last of its fuel, it could reach speeds approaching 600 miles per hour at such a velocity and being such a small target the Oko was incredibly difficult to hit and its 1200 kilogram warhead could be devastating to any ship that found itself on the wrong end of its final flight fortunately for the allies range was not one of its attributes and it had to be carried to its target by a specially modified betty bomber by this stage of the war The G4M Betty was extremely vulnerable to interception from the latest Allied fighters. And upon learning of this weakness and the threat the Oka posed, Allied commands countered by simply extending the range of their combat air patrols, shooting down the bombers long before the Oka's could get in range. Versions of this missile were proposed that could be launched from land or even submarines, but they failed to materialize in time. In the end, Despite a handful of ships being struck by ochres, their actual impact on the Allied war effort was minor. 852 were built, including a number of training variants, obviously not intended for combat, but Allied air superiority was simply too great. Realizing that the ochres slung under the bombers they were shooting at carried a single suicide pilot in them who would die even if the G4M was slightly damaged and the crew able to bail out, led Allied pilots to give them the unflattering name of Baka which roughly translates into Japanese as foolish. On August 20th, 1945, the last kamikaze attacks of the war took place in Manchuria, China, after the forces of the Soviet Union invaded, declaring war on Japan after the defeat of Nazi Germany. The attack against Soviet armored columns was more symbolic than of any real use, as within hours, Japanese forces began laying down their arms en masse as Emperor Hirohito announced Japan's surrender in the face of the American atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. While many facts and figures about the kamikaze are disputed, according to research published in the official history of the US Air Force, there were approximately 2,800 kamikaze attacks made during the final stages of the war, of which nearly one in five actually made it to their objective. The number of ships credited with having actually been sunk or damaged beyond repair is a significantly debated topic as other factors come into play, such as the need to repair ships damaged by kamikazes with the end of the war in sight. Ships that could have been repaired and returned to service were therefore listed as lost to the kamikazes. The US Air Force credit kamikazes with sinking 34 vessels, while other sources have claimed figures as high as 57 when these other factors are taken into consideration. No matter which figure you choose to support, it is generally agreed that the psychological impact of the kamikazes was greater than the number of ships they were able to sink. This has led to a number of researchers arguing that the kamikazes were little more than a last desperate act by japan that had no real chance of changing the outcome of the war and that their threat was greatly exaggerated there is some credence to this to be found in the fact that most of the ships sunk were light carriers destroyers or support ships which were very lightly armored against heavily armored ships like battleships or british fleet carriers with their armored flight decks they were significantly less effective. However, weighed against this is that hundreds of ships suffered minor to significant degrees of damage from kamikazes, which, while not sinking them, seriously affected their ability to continue the war effort. The threat they posed also diverted a significant amount of Allied attention to counter them and affected the planning of all naval operations once they appeared. Finally, regarding the concept of deliberately killing oneself to serve a cause, the kamikazes find themselves on the wrong end of the argument in the annals of history. As British journalist and historian, Sir Max Hastings put it, in many respects from the Japanese view, the whole kamikaze idea was much more rational than we sometimes care to admit. The first thing to be said is that after the Japanese had suffered a crushing defeat of their Navy in September, 1944, in the months that followed, their kamikazes destroyed far more American ships than the Japanese Navy had been able to destroy with all its battleships and carriers and heaven knows what since 1942. So the first thing that has to be said about the kamikazes is they worked and they were successful. Secondly, I think we sometimes ignore how narrow the borderline is between the Japanese kamikaze concepts, which we find absolutely repugnant and the sort of operations which Western armies carried out for which we awarded Victoria crosses and medals of honor.